You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning. I'm glad you could be here on such a special day when we ordain these new deacons. Um, What you may or may not know is that Josh Tate has a very large kidney stone. Uh, And so when he knelt this morning, I wasn't certain if it was going to move. And if it did, I would be sure that you would know the spirit was upon him. Although we don't know what spirit it would be. (laughs) Exactly. I understand. It's really bad. Please, Lord. Uh, But for those of you who have had it, you can surely pray for Josh. He's having a procedure tomorrow to remove this big bad boy. Uh, stone that he's got. Well, if uh, you don't have a Daniel journal, it's already been mentioned, we have some out in the lobby. You can slip out and go get one right now if you don't have one. I think we have some. They were going, Um, but you're welcome to do that if you need to. You have time. Um, Grace Connection this Saturday. Just want to say, if you're interested in... um, membership here at Grace. We'd love for you to come and join us from 9 to noon this Saturday morning and then one hour, 9.30 to 10.30 on Sunday morning. You would still be able to be here for the second service. Um, Even if you're not interested in membership, at least at this point, this will give you a good feel for what we believe, how our leadership is structured, how the church functions, and Um, Also, what what the opportunities are to serve. So sign up online or at the next steps table outside if you would. So uh, we'd love for you to join us in the Grace Connection class. Uh, This morning, we're going to return to our study of Daniel. We find ourselves in the first eight verses of Daniel chapter 7. Finishing chapter 6 just before Advent was perfect because the two halves of Daniel are very different. The first half of Daniel, first six chapters, it's full of court tales. Daniel, as you probably know, taken captivity when he was a teenager, maybe a young teenager, into Babylon. But he was trained to be an advisor to the emperor and distinguished himself very Fairly quickly, along with his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, so you've, you've got the, the, the tales of things that happened in the court. Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the interpretation of it. Daniel and the lion's den. The fiery furnace with the three Hebrew children being thrown in. Full of, I loved preaching through the first six chapters of Daniel that many call the Sunday school chapters or even the flannel graph chapters. We ain't in the flannel graph chapters anymore, I can assure you, beginning today in chapter 7. The second half of Daniel, very different than the first half. Four major visions that are listed in these chapters or recorded in these chapters. And the visions are reported in what we know as apocalyptic literature or apocalyptic language. I want you to know that I have prayed fervently that the rapture would come before I had to begin in Daniel chapter 7. 
But since we're all here, I, I guess we're doing this. Um, <clears throat> small sections of apocalyptic, that's what we call it for short, can be found in several Old Testament books. But by far the most prominent place we find it in the Old Testament is the book of Daniel. And in the New Testament, we find it in the book of Revelation. How many revelations? I'll ask this many times. One revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ to St. John. The first word, uh, the fir- in the first verse, we find this word apocalypsis. That's the Greek word. It's found in the first word. The p- apocalypse of Jesus Christ or the revelation, the revealing, the unveiling. That's what apocalypsis means. We typically rightly think of prophecy of end time events when we're thinking about apocalypse, the apocalypse. But at its root, the point is making known what is as well as what will be. Apocalyptic language uses bizarre and scary imagery that can feel quite impossible to decipher unless one has the code. Without question, question, symbolism is a big primary feature of this sort of literature. Some of the, of the symbolism is very clear, for Christians anyway, while other portions are not clear at all. Above all, in apocalyptic, we see judgment upon God's enemies and by extension, God's people, enemies of God's people. Or we could say it the other way. Judgment upon the enemies of God's people who are, by extension, enemies of God. And then we also see the salvation of his people. We see protection many times through very difficult times. But then even when people come to a horrible end as far as this world would consider life ending by execution, persecution, even then we are blessed to immediately be in the presence of the Lord. In a sense, apocalyptic is code for, although the rulers and kingdoms of this world oppress God's people, in the the end, God will destroy all of his enemies and earthly enemies to set up Jesus as king over all. And this for his glory and the benefit of his people. There are times when the author of Apocalyptic will tell us what the symbol means, but sometimes it's assumed that the reader knows. And that is because it is assumed that the primary reader of apocalyptic, biblical apocalyptic literature is one who follows the Lord through faith. In our case, since the time of Christ, it's one who follows Christ through faith in his death as Payment for our sins. Today's text, Daniel 7, 1 to 8, describes a vision of four beasts that almost certainly correspond at some level to Daniel 2, where Nebuchadnezzar saw this great statue and it was interpreted by God through Daniel to be prophesying four major kingdoms. Same thing is going on in Daniel 7, four major kingdoms. And it's the same four kingdoms that are talked about and prophesied in 
Daniel's vision as it was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Um, <clears throat> Daniel's language in chapter 2 was the language of diplomacy. Speaking truth without giving offense. Oh, great King Nebuchadnezzar, there's this statue. This is what you dreamed. It was a statue. It's metals, different metals. But you are represented by a head of gold, the most precious metal. He was very flowery in his praise of Nebuchadnezzar uh, in chapter 2. And Nebuchadnezzar would have liked that. Never thought about it before, but, you know, we talk about, quit saying that, you'll get the big head. Somebody will get the big head. Uh, we could say Nebuchadnezzar got the gold head, right? Uh, because Daniel was saying it very carefully. But when the four beasts are described in Daniel 7, diplomacy is not the goal. The beasts live up to, or should we say they live down to, their titles and images. They are power-hungry Beast with little regard for human life. While Daniel 1 to 6 is written for unbelievers and believers alike, Daniel 7 to 12 is written strictly for believers. Is there some way in which this apocalyptic, bizarre, scary language can be a comfort for believers? Absolutely. It's designed. Maybe primarily for that. But since we live with unprecedented freedom, security, and prosperity in our land, it's going to take some time for us to fully get our heads around it and comprehend the blessing that Daniel and Revelation are for believers who are being actively persecuted. Fortunately, we have several months in Daniel and Revelation to accomplish that very thing and learn this lesson. So that's a bit of a foundation for apocalyptic language as a whole. Second half of Daniel, book of Revelation, I'm sure we'll have some eschatological excursions along the way where we may bring in Matthew 24, 25, some other text of scripture. But we're going to be spending a lot of time in, in Daniel and Revelation this year. In just a moment, we're going to read Daniel 7, 1 through 8, which is really kind of an introduction to all of the rest of Daniel. I would have loved to have gone a little further. David singing Ancient of Days, that's going to sort of be a theme song. I believe we'll be singing it next week. That's in verse 9. I mean, had to stop just short. But I can tell you that verse 9 was looming large over my thoughts as I was studying and preparing and writing this message the ancient of days. But 1 to 8 sort of sets the stage, lays the foundation to the second half of Daniel. So after we read it, we'll try to get a little bit of an understanding of it. And then I want to close <clears throat> with application that connects us to all believers who have received, are receiving, and will receive these words. Daniel chapter 7 verses 1 to through eight, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. 
Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, and be seated. So we're told right up front that Daniel wrote, his first vision in the first year of Belshazzar, getting an exact date. And I don't know if you recall back in, in the first six chapters, we had some pretty specific dates for the timing of those events. <clears throat> but getting a specific date for this one is a little more diffi difficult. Uh, Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, was the king and, or the emperor and his, he wasn't a very popular guy, so he took off and, because he worshipped a different god than, than most of the Babylonians. And so he went off into self-imposed um, in, exile, he went out to the country somewhere, but he left his son Belshazzar in charge. And at some point, Belshazzar became known as the king. So, again, we're not exactly sure the... The, the original date, probably 550, uh, but it's not important in understanding Daniel's vision. Now, if you're wondering who it was that wrote about this vision that Daniel had, it was Daniel. Authors often wrote in the third person back in the day, uh, and this is true in the first century as well as 6th century B.C., but it would be like you meeting me somewhere this week. Suppose you hadn't come to services and then you said, so who preached on Sunday? <clears throat> and I said, well, Pastor Brad preached. He brought the word. And here's what he said. You'd think that's weird. <laughs> and it really would be weird if I said that. But it wasn't that way. In fact, it was almost <clears throat> sort of a sign of humility not to talk in the first person, but to talk rather in the third person. The first thing Daniel saw in his vision was the great sea being churned up by winds from all four directions, north, south, east, and west. 
Um, <clears throat> the Great Sea in the Old Testament is almost always known as the Mediterranean Sea, <clears throat> just to the west, just off the west coast of Israel. And the, the sea in the Old Testament almost always represents or characterizes a time of chaos and trouble or a period or a, a place of trouble and turbulence. Here in Daniel 7, the chaos is extreme, even if that sounds redundant. Four winds, imagine that, stirring up the sea. Now, I'm not a nautilus. I don't even know if I said the word right, but, but I'm not a boat person. But I can only imagine if you're out on a boat and you're commandeering that boat and there are winds coming from every direction, this feels like trouble. This indicates the entire world is in chaos. We Americans seem to know less about the rest of the world than almost any other people. Maybe because we haven't experienced <clears throat> as much chaos as others have. This will change at some point. I hope it's a long way off, but it will inevitably change at some point in America. And it might be sooner than we anticipate. Again, I hope not. I'm not referring to 2020-style chaos, but much, much worse, like Great Depression with horrible rioting and martial law everywhere and people looting and everywhere. The more you know about history, the more prepared you will be for the days, months, years ahead in the land where God has placed you to serve him in the kingdom. In verse 3, we're told that four great beasts came out of the water and that each was different from all the others. In verse 17, we'll see next week, we're told that the beasts represent four kings that will oversee earthly kingdoms again. That makes the connection with Daniel 2 and, and Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this great statue. In the vision, there are common themes of aggression, violence, and beastly impulses to prowl and tear and devour. So again, not a good Sunday school lesson or flannel graph lesson in Daniel 7, although I'm sure it's been done. <laughs> In verse 4, we're introduced to the first beast, which is no ordinary beast. And before you begin writing, just want to mention to you, if you're going to be in home group this week, you're going to have all of these notes. You've got time now because I'm talking about don't take notes, but you're not going to be able to get everything, or at least I don't think you will. And even if you could, <clears throat> I'd really like for you to just focus and concentrate on on what we're thinking about together here from the Word, rather than trying to just write this down. Uh, there are notes just outside the sanctuary on the left as you leave. You can get, get those, or if you're in home group, you'll have all of these anyway. And home group leaders, if you would, please send the notes out today so that people will have these. It's right after the first page of the questions for home group. A lot of these slides are reproduced uh, in that document. So, 
right now, I, I want us to focus on this. And by the way, there's also a handout from the four millennial positions that we talked about two, three months ago. I saw maybe, it was very interesting. It was a day where we had a lot of visitors. And I remember telling one or two of them, I'm so sorry that you're here on this day when we're talking about the four millennial positions. I don't think I've ever seen any of them again. So <laughs> I don't know. But it's going to be important for you to have those sheets and to be thinking about the four millennial positions as we enter into the second half of Daniel and Revelation. It's going to come up uh, quite a few times. So the first beast almost certainly refers to Babylon. Andrew Steinman has done the work to inform us that Nebuchadnezzar is compared to a lion in Jeremiah and the Babylonian King, nation, or armies are compared to eagles in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, and Lamentation. So lots of places where Babylon or the leaders of Babylon, the nation of Babylon, are referenced in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, the wings being torn off could very well refer to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation because of his pride that we read about in Daniel chapter 4. The second beast is a bear that likely represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, some scholars say that the second empire is the Medes, and the third is the Persians, and the fourth is the Greeks. And one of the reasons that they say that is it allows for a later date for Daniel to be written than in the 6th century B.C. But in, in a sense, what they're calling for is the ability... To write history as if it's prophecy. There's no need for that. If we believe that there's a God who knows everything. And who ordains everything. It doesn't have to be. I agree with the conservative scholars who would say. That this second beast represents the Medes and the Persians. Um, the Persians became much stronger. That may be the idea of the bear lifted up. On one side. And the Persians sort of subsumed the Medes into um, their empire. It became the Persian Empire. And if you would like to say they subsumed the Medes into their empire. And Cyrus was related to the man he defeated to solidify his empire. I don't know about you. I don't want to meet a bear in the woods. I don't want to meet a bear anywhere, but I surely don't want to meet a bear in the woods on my own. Ferocious animals. The three ribs in the mouth instead of a full complement of ribs, though, might indicate its limited ability to conquer. It did serious damage, though, as it was given a command to devour much Flesh. Now who can give this beast a command to devour much flesh? Well, really, it has to be God. And that creates a dilemma in a lot of people's thinking, and I get it. How can God be sovereign over all events... Even the details of our lives. But he's sovereign over all world history events. So when 
in late November, you're really frustrated because your side didn't do more to get your guy elected or woman, whoever the case may be. Understand that God is sovereign over all events, but he's never responsible for sin. And it's difficult sometimes getting your head around that. I, I am just now beginning to get my head around that, but I've believed it for a long time. And faith always precedes understanding, doesn't it? We, we hear people say, well, just prove to me, God, that you exist, and then I'll believe in Jesus. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. You believe, and then I'll show you. It doesn't work the other way. This is one of those truths that it would be very good for you to just accept and, and allow God to give you understanding as you believe that he is a sovereign over all things. He is supreme over all things. He's never responsible for sin. And the next beast will maybe get a little better understanding on that. <clears throat> if we believe that God is sovereign, then he's sovereign over everything. In Revelation 6, when the fourth seal is open, a rider on a pale horse is given authority to, authority to kill with sword, pestilence, and wild beast. <clears throat> so, on to the third beast. A leopard with four wings and four heads. And I guess it would be as good a time as any to say, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. The four heads likely indicate a desire to conquer in all directions at once. This is the Greek empire, most likely. Uh, it, could only, it could also refer to the division of the kingdom into four parts after Alexander the Conqueror's death. It, um, here in chapter 7, we should focus specifically, though, on the speed with which Alexander conquered. This beast is the only one of the four that is said to be given dominion. And this power is greatly abused by a later ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, who we'll hear a lot more about. I think it's chapter 8. I'm pretty sure it is. He's the best candidate we have in Scripture as a type of the Antichrist. As Andrew Steinman says, these kings are not agents of God, but rather servants of God that he uses to align the world to be prepared to receive the kingdom of salvation and grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Once again, more about Antiochus in chapter 8. The final beast is a doozy as if the others have not been. It's not described as an animal we would recognize, but it's terrifying to behold and its effects are devastating. This beast is indiscriminate in its destruction of other peoples with a particular vendetta, as we will see as we go, against the people of God. The description of the little horn is pejorative, intentionally. So, 
God essentially identifies this little horn as a little man with a big mouth. That's what it means when it says. He says great things. We're going to find out his blasphemous things against God and against his people. Think of Napoleon Bonaparte as much more evil than he was. A little man speaking boastful and arrogant curses. There's much more to say about this beast next week. But there will also be much to say about the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. We're just getting started in this major apocalyptic portion of Scripture. So before we finish, I, I want to consider five points of application that you may be tempted to say, huh? How do you get that from this text? Well, actually, this application is, it, it, it kind of undergirds and it, 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 it covers the entire study that we're going to be doing. And um, so it's a big picture kind of application to apocalyptic as we go forward. The first thing is this. We need to think about why God's people were in Babylon in the first place. We get so caught up in all the things that were going on in Daniel that we forget about. Why were they there in Babylon in the first place? God's people were in captivity in Babylon because of lack of trust in God's promises. Therefore, we ought to learn from their mistakes. Now, the mess that God's children were in in Daniel was of their own making. But aren't you glad that when you get in a mess of your own making, that the Lord doesn't say, you made your bed, lie in it. Now, what he doesn't say is, you made your bed, and I'm going to get you out of it, and we're going to, everything's going to be exact. Look, there are consequences for our sins. There are consequences for bad decisions. But God is with us every step of the way. And the moment we repent, the moment that we confess our sins, He is right with us saying, let's go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you even in this difficult time. The Israelites were in Babylon for 70 years as Jeremiah had prophesied that they would be. At the end of 2 Chronicles 36, we understand why they were there. <clears throat> 70 years, 70 years, it says in 2 Chronicles 36, 70 years they'll be in Babylon so that the land can get its Sabbath rest. All the way back in Leviticus 25, God had said, here's what you're to do. This is a command. Plant and reap for six years and then let the land lay or lie fallow. For, a, for, for one year. And there were all kinds of advantages to this. Um, it would restore the natural nutrient balance of the land. Um, <clears throat> and also it would get rid of pests and insects that, that were not treatable by pesticides. Because there were no pesticides, of course, in that day. So there were a lot of practical advantages for doing that. But I want you to think about it for a minute. Look, when do you see food? When it's presented to you on the plate and maybe occasionally when you have to pick up groceries for your spouse, you know, because 
she can't uh, go to the grocery store. So you go, we don't, we don't grow our own food. Just imagine if, if our livelihood and even our survival depended on our ability to grow food and then sell it or at least have it for your children and, and your family. How would you feel, <clears throat> you know, if God came along to you and said, I want you to work for six years and then I want you to take a full year off. It was far more akin to that than it is to our jobs, taking a year off of our jobs. To, to let the land lie was really risky. That's what people considered. It was an economic risk. I can't afford to do that. In fact, isn't that what the Sabbath is kind of all about? When you really, when you dig down, why do people not want to take a full Sabbath? Things to do, people to see, places. We just got to get on with it, with life. And how many of you, I think most of you would probably consider Sunday a Sabbath. How many of you do some work on Sunday? We, do, we, we all do, right? And it's more than our ox being in the ditch. It's just kind of what you do. You figure it out as you go. So it's an economic risk if you don't take this Sabbath. But it's an economic trust if you do. It's putting your full weight and faith in God's promises that he is going to take care of you. So the New Testament equivalent would be a tithe, wouldn't it? The Lord saying, trust me, give 10% of your income. Tithe is not required in the New Testament, it's a, but it's a great starting place. 10% of the income in the Old Testament was a tax as well as a gift in the, the land. And, and it was far more than 10%. It ended up being like 22, 3% of a person's possessions and finances. All of that, when you add it all up, it ended up a lot more. But it was a tax. But nonetheless, that principle of giving to the Lord is what he calls us to do as believers. And he doesn't require it. He says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Don't. Don't give under compulsion, but give because your heart is toward the Lord. It's grace giving, while we call grace giving. But how many people say, I can't afford to do it. If you knew my situation, you wouldn't ask me to do this. I'm not asking you in the first place, although it probably sounds like I am. Um, but the Lord encourages us to do that as a matter of trust in our hearts. I, I wasn't going to, I thought about it this week. I didn't write it in the notes. And first service, I ended up saying it, so I've got to say it here, uh, even, even so. And you, and I, look, you don't want to live in my head for a week. You just don't, it's not a, not a pleasant place to be. But you think about something, you say, no, I shouldn't say that. But yes, I'm going to say it. Um, look, our, our church this service, the second service, not as full as it was last week, but it's a lot fuller than it used to be. And when these houses around us start to open up and, and people start coming, 
a lot of them are going to be young families. Those are homes where, where young families are going to move in. When do people go back to church? When they have kids. Not as much now as it was maybe 30, 40 years ago. But when people have kids, they think, ah, well, you know, we need to get back in church. And it's convenient, right? We got how many thousand homes just within three miles of us going up in the next few years? What are we going to do? We need to build. We need to think about planning. And look, we're in an okay financial position, pretty good financial, better than we've been in many, many years. But not because everybody's giving. It's because we've had a couple of really nice, large gifts this year. I don't know who gave them. I don't want to know. Please don't tell me who gave those. I don't ever want to look at people that way. I don't ever want you to think that I'm looking that way. But I can tell you, the Lord is calling us to trust Him by giving better than we're giving. Not everybody. Many of you are giving as much as you can. And if you think, I just can't afford it, may I suggest to you that you cannot afford not to? That if you will test the Lord, as he says in Malachi, just see what he'll do for you and how he will take care of you. Now look, that's why God said, you're in captivity because you failed to trust me with the Sabbath year in the land. Now, how did we get from there to kings sacrificing their sons in brutal, horrible ways? If I ask you, why were the Babylonians sent into captivity? You'd say, look, Scripture's full of it. It says, it, it says the kings were sacrificing their sons. They would, Molech, the priest of Molech would call for a... Um, a sacrifice because the gods had not given rain like they, they needed. And, and so the whole village would gather and one, two, and three-year-old sons would be snatched from their parents' arms and slammed down into this furnace of fire. Horrible, horrible things. And that has nothing to do with the lack of letting the land lie except that all gets tied up a trust a trust issue. Now look, I don't struggle with that trust issue about finances, but I do struggle in other areas. And when I refuse to trust God, to obey Him in the areas that He calls me to obey, I know that other things in my life begin to slip. God calls us to 100% Trust Him. And we absolutely are put in situations where we don't naturally trust any causes. Trust me and see. It's about trusting God to take care of you, which is the focus of our second point. The gospel leads us to embrace obedience to God's commands as a response of gratitude for his goodness rather than as an attempt to win his behavior. It's not that some evangelical churches preach too much gospel. It's that they preach too little. It would be easy to say, well, I better shape up if I expect God to take care of me. 
And that's true in a sense, but the gospel fills our hearts with a holy desire to serve and obey him. Because we're privileged. We've been called into his family. We've been called by his name. So how does this happen? Because, look, the, the children of Israel were unable to keep the law. One of the reasons that the law was given was to show that we're incapable of keeping the law. Only because Jesus kept the law and then died as a perfect sacrifice for us can we have anything to do with God or have him have anything to do with us. Good. When we call on Jesus to save us based on his sacrifice on the cross, then our hearts are transformed from obeying God or watching our step or doing the best we can because we have to, we must, if we want to have a relationship with God, to, and our hearts are transformed into obeying Him because we want to please this one who gave His all for us. Do I have to tithe? No. I, I am blessed to give back just a teeny portion of what the Lord has done for me. Do I have to restrain my impulses to sin when the world is telling me to do as I feel? I am privileged to follow the one who overcame all temptation and died to himself so that I might live. Not that it's easy. I always think when we sing Jesus is better, man, I just wish. I'm, I just wish there were a line in there, then all temptation, Jesus is better. Think about it. He's better than riches, better than any fame, but he's better than any temptation. He will walk with me through all the chaos that the world can send my way, which leads to the next point. The sovereignty and supremacy of God over world events and over the world itself, past, present, and future, is a comfort for those who believe. If you don't know this yet, you will know it as we go. I hope you will. Are you nervous about 2024? I am, a little. Not only here, but worldwide. I'm nervous about what might happen. But I can know that God is with me and he's with his church. No matter how bad it gets this year, 10 years, 100, 1,000, a million years from now. If he delays his coming that long. I don't think he will, but he may. Furthermore, I can rest in the knowledge that God is sovereign over all events in history and all the details of my life. And oddly enough, I learned this in apocalyptic literature. Fourth, develop the spiritual disciplines of trust in and gratitude for a God who is good to his people. How grateful are you for what you have. Would your life be characterized more by gratitude for what you have or grumbling about what you don't 
have. You get the sense that Daniel, in, in his difficulties, in his trials, was grateful to the Lord for using him and loving him and seeing him be a part of God's plan for the nations. The difference between Daniel and us is that Daniel only pointed to a future in which the kingdom of God would come down the road. We get to say the kingdom of God is already here. Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom. Now, it's not yet in its full glory as it will be when he returns for a second time at his second advent. But we are already in the kingdom. We don't have to build the kingdom. We get to respond to his leadership and serve in the kingdom and tell others about Jesus while he builds the kingdom. A spirit of ingratitude is soil for all manner of sins to take root and to grow. Gratitude and trust go hand in hand, don't they? If I'm grumbling about my circumstances, then it is apparent that I don't trust that God is good to his people, not always good to his people anyway. And I'm one of God's people because of my relationship with Jesus. Wouldn't it be a good discipline to at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day to thank the Lord? And I'm not just talking about thank you, Lord, for all our blessings. I'm talking about listing them off. Just listing the blessings. What are the good things in your life? Do it at the beginning and the end, and you may find yourself doing it a lot more. And if you do, you're far more likely to fulfill this last point. Follow Jesus, whatever the cost, especially when we get to Revelation. We're going to see how important this is. Satan hates God. He hates Jesus. And he hates God's people. I think I mentioned last week that I'm reading the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis. And I'm in the second book, Paralandra. And it's Venus, but they call it Paralandra in the book. And he, he, he has gone there, been sent there. And then he's the only human from Earth that's ever been there. And the, 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 the one being that he's met, and he's told of another being, are perfect. It's Adam and Eve. It's essentially Adam and Eve all over again. I don't know what's going to happen. And please don't tell me if, you, if you've already read that far. But <clears throat> so... Ransom, who is our hero, is there, and he gets into a duel with Satan because Satan finds himself, gets his way there, finds his way there. He's in the, in the body of another character. And at one point, and I've never really, really known how to process this, process this, but all of a sudden, by reading fiction, I'm able to process it. Ransom feels this hatred growing in him. Not the kind of hatred that is wrong or sinful at all, but a perfect hatred, if you will, toward Satan. I thought, it's so true. Well, that we can do that. We ought to hate sin and we ought to hate Satan. We ought to hate his work. I will tell you this, he hates us. 
Do not be surprised, First Peter tells us, when fiery trials come upon us. Rather than destroying us as Satan would have them do. That's what these four beasts are all about. Stomping and grinding. Destroying. But rather than destroy us, they serve to make us more like Jesus. Satan hates that. For those of us who belong to Jesus, it is impossible to fully articulate the blessing of belonging to him and following him. Even when everything in the world is against us. Doesn't make sense to the world, but it should make sense to us. As we're going to see, we will reign with Jesus when his kingdom has fully come. When our eyes are open to the glory that he has prepared for us, we will understand fully that it was worth it all. If we have any regrets, it will only be, they will only be that we did not follow him more closely than we did. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for everything, really. When we belong to Jesus, we can give thanks for everything. Not, well, we can give thanks in everything, even if we're not thankful for the horrors and this and, 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 and this satanically induced illnesses and all the things like Paul said a messenger of Satan was given to me this thorn in the flesh but then he knew that he didn't need to ask Satan to remove it but he asked God who said no, no, there for a purpose my grace is sufficient for you so Lord in everything we give thanks for the blessings that are ours in Christ. We can never say thank you enough. May our hearts be turned to you. And even as the world around us turns dark. We are reminded that it's not the first time. And that you are sovereign and supreme over all things. And all things work for the good of your people. Thank you. We are called by Jesus' name. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.